Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Hey guys, we have Douglas Atkin with us today. That's right. Uh, talking cult brand and how not to fuck up your culture. Uh, if you don't know Douglas's work, first and foremost, where the hell have you been? Uh, he's a cult brand. Enough. Yeah, he's a cult brand expert, former global head of community at Airbnb, held a position as partner in chief community officer at meetup.com and literally Always one of the smartest people in the room. Oh, you guys. Yeah. You guys. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Joel. We're the we're the best unpaid hype masters in the industry. Yeah, no kidding, right? Have I mentioned <laughs> Douglas actually wrote the book on cult brands? You have mentioned that once or twice. Dude, dude yes. created the category for God's sake. So this is the uh, fifth installment. The fifth installment of uh, Douglas's How to Live Your Purpose series, which uh, these podcasts are intended to be a compliment to uh, what he's writing over on medium.com. You can go to the pod notes on chadcheese.com, click on the link, and you can read and listen. Welcome back, Douglas. Welcome back, Douglas, from Thank the Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Landscape of Tuscany, I'm sure, sipping on some fine wine while you chat with us. I don't know if you can tell I'm excited. Uh, today's show is centered on... <laughs> Don't fuck up the culture. So, Douglas, let's start. Let's start out with the very basics on this one, shall we? What is culture, and why is it so important? Right. So that's a really good question. What is culture? Because you know everyone talks about culture, and I think a lot of people think they know what it is, but the moment you try and say, "Well, okay, define it," then uh, people kind of go um, 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 and then say, "Well, it's sort of fun in the workplace, I guess." <laughs> Which, to be honest, is absolutely what it's not. You know, I mean, yes, you can have fun in the workplace, but that's not really a, a good definition of culture. And I found um, th- there was a moment at Airbnb in 2015 where we noticed that the culture was getting wobbly. It had been famously strong, but it, there were sort of cracks appearing. And um, I wanted to figure out why. And then I realized, well, hang on a second. We talk about the culture. It's wobbly. I've been investing in it. But what is it exactly? What is this thing we call culture? Over 2015, I've been there for about three years, I guess. The company had grown at, at two to three X, meaning that there was twice or three times as many, between twice and three times as many customers, hosts and guests, revenue, uh, bookings and the people to run it all. And that's a massive, massive growth, hyper growth, which is great, you know, but when you're growing that fast, it's going to create strains, especially internally and especially to things like um, the culture. And it's, the culture is something that, that, as we've talked about before, the, the founders have taken extremely seriously and invested uh, literally millions of dollars into it. And they've, done, they've not done things in order to preserve the culture. They didn't um, acquire Wimdu when it was dangled in front of them by the Samware brothers in Germany, which was a sort of a turnkey operation, copycat site, 
that um, the Samware brothers, this is their modus operandi, had, had built in Europe just for the purpose of getting Airbnb to buy it. But the three founders uh, met them, toured the facilities, met all the people and said, no, we can't do this because it'll, it'll probably not just not fit our culture, but destroy the original because this place is so different from us and, and we think more toxic. So, um, and that, that was a big decision, by the way, because, you know, that was a turnkey operation with millions of customers and a whole network of employees and offices around Europe. So not buying it was a big decision. eBay and Groupon had bought their copycats from the Samway Brothers, you know, in their time. But Airbnb decided not to, because, simply because of the culture. Uh-huh. You know, it made business sense to buy it in the short term, but long term, not to do it. So, so the culture was, was valued extremely high at Airbnb. And, you know, they'd done things like um, uh, one Airbnb, which I talked about before, which is when we fly in millions, uh, not millions, thousands of employees from around the world to basically hang out with each other for a week. That's its main purpose, is to um, get people to meet each other, engage with each other, get to know each other, create the sort of, the thing that, which I think culture is basically, it's, it's basically a sort of rich social soup uh, with many ingredients in it. But basically, it's the, the result of all the millions of interactions between people um, as they decide things together, interrelate with each other, you know, engage with each other and all those things. A critical moment happened in the fall of 2015, when an advertising campaign was posted on uh, on posters in San Francisco. And immediately there was an outcry within literally within an hour or two hours of it being posted uh, as people were coming into work. There was uh, the internet went ablaze uh, about this campaign. If you look at the campaign now, you probably think, well, why was there so much fuss? But, but for the people in the company, it seemed totally alien to to us. It didn't seem like it was coming from us. Um, it was very sort of confrontative, a little bit arrogant. Ah. It, the, the purpose of the campaign uh, was was to change a political opinion, basically, about a, a ballot measure that would essentially have banned Airbnb in its home city in 2015. And so it was to try to change hearts and minds, but it was doing it in a very, what felt, alien way to us. And so within hours, it was pulled down and there was like a big inquiry. We had a meeting in the main sort of meeting room in uh, Airbnb with hosts and with um, as many employees as could attend with the founders. Why was it so, I don't know, aggressive to the employees? Was it the messaging? Was it just the activity of... The tone of voice was very adversarial, but also very arrogant, you know, and Mm. sort of snide. So people looked at that and said, but that's not me. That's not us. We're not like that. And the hosts were furious because they felt it wasn't like them either. And they felt it would jeopardize their position legally in the city. So anyway, the reason I'm mentioning this is that it was it was sort of an event that was waiting to happen because during the course of that year, that I've been hearing a lot of grumblings and moanings from people who've been there for a while. And when I say for a while, I mean, a tenured employee, employee at this point was one who'd been there for a year or more. <laughs> <laughs> Like most companies where a tenured employee would have been there for like five, 10 years, 20 years, you know. So, um, but anyway, these people were saying, oh my God, we're growing so fast. In the haste, we're putting, you know, bums on seats uh, without really checking thoroughly enough that, they, um, that they're a good cultural fit. You know, one of the things that uh, created most complaints was seeing a lot of engineers in particular, we think it was, walking around with Facebook t-shirts on or Google t-shirts or Pinterest t-shirts on. And, you know, our, our visceral response was, 
we don't care if you worked at Facebook or Pinterest or, or Google. They're not as good as us, and they're different. And the fact that you think that it's a good thing to wear that T-shirt means that you don't get it and you don't belong. With sort of tenured employees' visceral response. Because in everyone's mind, there is a very strong culture and it's very different from those companies. Right. So why wear their T-shirts, you know? You've got nothing else to wear for crying out loud. You're an engineer, <laughs> you're paid a fortune. So anyway, there was, there was these sort of grumblings and things. So I, Joe asked me, Joe Gabbia, one of the three founders, true, he's sort of seen as the sort of heart and soul of the place, really. The one that kind of cares the most about these kinds of things. Uh-huh. He, he asked me to to go out and start talking to some of the people, uh, you know, talking to people to see if there was an issue with the culture. And when I sat down to, to do that, I thought, huh, you know, I, one of the things I, I asked lots of questions, actually, one of which was the one you asked a moment ago, which was, what is culture? Mm-hmm. Because if I'm going to be talking to people about it, what am I talking to them about? And, and were, anyway, these are the questions I realized I had to be asking of myself and ourselves, which is, what is culture? You know, if it's so important to us and we're investing all this time and money into it, shouldn't we know what it is that we're investing in? Exactly. We know what product is. We know what people is, you know. But there's this nebulous, vague, sort of misty thing called culture. And we, we haven't even defined exactly what it is. And how is it made? You know, how do you make more of that culture? Yeah. And, and also, how do you unmake it? How do you destroy the culture? How do you fuck it up? <laughs> How do you fuck it up? Yeah, I'll come to that in a minute. And, um, and what, what I realize, you know, it's, it's definitely it's not fun in the workplace, which is that default, chronically unhelpful definition that most people use. And then I was also asking the question, is the culture as strong as we keep telling ourselves it is? Or if not, what's hurting it? And then, and then finally, what is our culture? You know, how is it defined? Is it caring? Is it aggressive? Is it nurturing? Is it sink or swim? You know, when people responded to that advertising campaign and said, that's not us, well, what is us? We should be able to define ourselves to ourselves, our culture. So I went back, uh, uh, you know, I talked to a few people, then went back to both Joe and Brian and said, yes, uh, there is something wrong going on. And I, I want to go back out there and, and interview some more people. Uh, uh, let me go back to a moment to this, don't fuck up the culture. I, I called the piece I wrote a medium, how to live your purpose, don't fuck up the culture, because it's a phrase that was used a lot in Airbnb, especially by by Brian Chesky, uh, the CEO and co-founder, but by all of us, really. And that's because Peter Thiel, who's famous or infamous <laughs> in Silicon Valley, he was co-founder of PayPal, then um, has a huge venture fund. So in 2012, he handed over a $200 million check to the founders. And it was one of the biggest single investments the, the organization had had in its young history. As he was handing it over, Brian asked him for advice. So, so you think of that for a moment. So you've got this guy who's made billions, who's been incredibly successful, who's invested in incredibly, what became incredibly successful companies. This founder is asking him for advice. Like basically he's saying, how do we preserve and grow your 200 million? Yeah. And the thing that, that Teal responded with was, don't fuck up the culture, which is not what most people would have responded with. You know, most people would have said, Make the best product you can. Hire the best people. You know, all the normal stuff you hear. But no, he decided, don't have, you know, watch your runway, watch all these kinds of things. You know, he obviously considered culture was the most important thing that they would could fuck up 
um, but also could be the, one of the biggest things that contributed to a big return on his investment. So what most leaders do, actually, though, you know, they, they don't put that as a priority. It's, it's, culture is a sort of, has become a sort of nice if you can get it thing. It's not something that's on the top three or four you know, priorities that a CEO or a leader of any kind. I love in your story where you say uh, culture is typically a, an investment by HR to have some fun things in the office. Yeah. And, and it'll take care of itself. Yes, exactly. That's what most, most leaders are focusing quite rightly on things like, you know, the best product and, and all those kinds of things. But they, and they sort of hope uh, that culture will, will be a nice you know, outcome of it all. You know, maybe a little happy outcome of running the organization wells. Well, and if there's a problem, just throw some dollars at HR and they'll run a few parties and put a beer keg. Go buy a ping pong table. Yes, and a beer keg on Fridays or something. I like you know. that one. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that one too. Peter Thiel and the founders uh, before and since then have had the right attitude to culture, which is it requires investment as much as the best people investing in the best product, you know, product and development, research, all these kinds of things. All the things you see of, see as a leader as the things you should be investing in, they put culture v- very near the top, if not the top, um, as something that needs conscious attention and application of dollars, time and energy um, to be successful. So I um, wrote an email actually to Brian and Joe over the Christmas break in 2015 saying the culture is fucked. Because, you know, as Joe had asked, I'd gone out and talked to some people and I came back and realized that things uh, weren't good. Now, the truth was, I was, you know, I was saying the culture is fucked uh, as a bit of a, um, an emphasis point. The truth was, it wasn't fucked. It was still very strong, but it was getting wobbly. And getting wobbly was not something that we would ever want to tolerate. I think it'd be great for companies to understand how you identified the culture was getting wobbly because you say it, but it's like, how did you know? And then what, yeah. then what did you do about it? Okay. Okay, good. So one of the first things, so I went out and did this tour with this um, colleague of mine, Dave O'Neill, uh, around the world to many of our offices and interviewed over 300 employees, making sure that I was interviewing people of all tenures, you know, people who joined just a few weeks ago to people who been there when there was you know back in 2009 2010 whatever also every discipline you know, engineering marketing partnerships whatever different nationalities and uh, and geographies and different levels from the most senior uh, people on the east staff all the way down to to the most junior and i asked the same questions of everyone and you know got them to do the same exercises so one of the first things we did was i basically said uh, I was trying to find out, is the culture as strong as we think it is? Well, one way to find out is to ask a really open-ended question, which is, why are you here? You could probably get a really good, better-paying job elsewhere, because at the time we weren't paying that much, because you know, we, we had a strong culture. Everyone wanted to come and join. But uh, you know, especially in Silicon Valley and in London, it's a very competitive market. So I said, you could probably leave and get, a, get more money. Why are you here and why are you staying? And I gave them cards to write down the top two or three reasons. And so um, every time, apart from one person, just one person out of the 300 said, I'm here for the money. <laughs> just one? Just one. Wow. Yep. I think he was kidding himself, to be honest. You know, that's what he was telling himself. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, he shall remain nameless. Um, but everyone actually wrote the same things, which was, and I'm just looking at some of these cards now that I took photographs of, people, culture, values, the mission. And things like, I can make an impact. I really love my colleagues. 
So it was, here's an example of one. Why am I here? I love the vision and I'm very sure that uh, Airbnb's mindset is the right way to go long term. I love that Airbnb cares for their employees and make sure everybody lives the vision, the vision, the culture. I'm here for the culture. So that was good. That was encouraging. Plus I had, you know, that was qualitative evidence. I also had um, quantitative evidence. Uh, twice a year, we run this survey called Murmur, where we ask a, a ton of questions. And, you know, there's a very high rate of filling these things in, uh, these surveys, believe it or not. It's like 95, 96%. Wow. And so 89% of people agreed that I am proud of the culture at Airbnb in the fall of 2015. So, you know, clearly the culture was very, very strong. But as one of those respondents said in that Murmur survey, I've written it down here. He said, after all the talk of not fucking up the culture, I can confirm that it is thoroughly fucked. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So, yes, it's strong. But there there were signs like that, that that people were getting nervous about the culture wasn't as strong as it used to be. Yeah. So was this individual, had they been around a while and they'd been able to see what the culture was like and where it was going? Is that kind of how you could gauge some of that? Exactly. I mean, obviously, the people with more tenure thought there was more of a problem. Yeah. Because, you know, they had been, like I had, I joined when there's about 150 people in HQ, and um, the founders are in every meeting. You, you basically see each other all the time and interact. You know, it's, it's very, it's a small group. 150 is the, um, what's yeah. called the Dunbar number, 100 or 150, named after a um, anthropologist, I think, or a sociologist okay. called Dunbar. He said, that's the maximum number of people that you can remember the names of in an organization. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but actually, you know, it's, why, it's the reason why the Romans had um, centurions and centuries. You know, they had a hundred soldiers with one centurion because it could create strong bonds. You, got, you knew each other, you, you depended on each other. You know, there's a mutual um, reinforcement and all those kinds of things. So, so, so obviously the tenured people, yes, they could see more of an erosion of the culture. The next thing I wanted to do was to find out, well, okay, I need to know two things. What builds the culture? What erodes the culture? You know, specifically at Airbnb, what is making the culture stronger, if anything? And what is making it weaker, if anything? So the best way I, I mean, because culture is this amorphous thing, you know, this sort of miasma, this fog called culture, and no one can really like touch it or grasp it. Um, I had to use a metaphor. And the metaphor I, I used was a balloon, you know, a normal party balloon. And I said, imagine that uh, you have a balloon in front of you and it's uh, the air in the balloon is Airbnb's culture. So you can make more of it. You can blow more air into the balloon and have more culture and a bigger balloon. Equally, though, leaks can occur in the balloon and the culture will leak out. What I want you to do is draw a picture of a party balloon, which they did on a big piece of paper. And I said, I want you to identify the things which are making more culture. You know, what is the stuff in the air that's making the the balloon bigger and stronger? And then also identify the things uh, which are making the culture leak out. So I'm just looking at one of these right now, one of the hundreds that were drawn and I will read you some of the things that this particular person put in in terms of inflating the culture, all right? So the first one is our mission. Our mission is the purpose of creating a world where anyone can belong anywhere. Um, good people, mission-driven people. One Airbnb, which is that big meeting, annual meeting I was telling you about where we all get together for a week of, of you know, getting to know each other. Um, the founders were big contributors. 
what else? Uh, drive, ambition, big ideas and opportunities, that kind of stuff. Then I asked, uh, you know, what are the deflators? So there were things like leaders and e-staff. E-staff was the management team, you know, the department heads who report to the founders. Leaders and the e-staff who just don't get it. And then uh, under that, people who don't live the values. Lack of trust with all these new people. We don't really know where they're coming from. And uh, let me have another look here. Um, hiring non-mission-oriented people, putting business before the mission. So what had been happening, actually, and he said, once they did all these things, well, I said, I went back to these inflators and deflators and said, let's talk about those a bit more. So you're saying putting business before the mission. Can you give me an example? And um, there were several common examples that were quite controversial in 2015. One of them was a big bet they made about expanding vacation rentals. They hired a guy from Google, really nice guy, good guy, actually. And um, they wanted to, to expand the number of listings in vacation locations. So things like, you know, ski areas and, and seasides. Now, the trouble with that is that those properties tend to be purpose-built and run by property managers. Yeah. They're not necessarily the homes of real people, which they're letting out for a few nights right. or a bedroom for a few nights, whatever, okay? Yeah. And, so, and, you know, property managers aren't aren't like hosts. Hosts are personal and local and you know they're, they're, they're spending as much time not just making sure you've got a clean and beautiful place to stay, but making you feel welcome, making you feel like a local. Make- they want you to belong, right? I mean, the property managers, not so much. So that felt like uh, a big investment that was not just, you know, not forwarding the mission, but positively undermining it, you know, by hiring, by hiring non-belong-anywhere hosts, basically. And then when I was talking about, and then another one of those big business decisions was one called 100% Instant Book. Now, on the surface, this looks like a really good thing for users, which was, you know, just like a hotel, you could find a, an Airbnb host and listing and instantly book it. You didn't have to wait the normal 24 hours for them to respond that you often have to do. So that sounded like a good idea. And it was a good idea from a business point of view too, because we had a pretty low, what's called browse to book rate. It was a conversion rate of about 60%. So 60% of people who browsed then actually made a booking. So, you know, we wanted to increase that rate, obviously, as any business would. But a lot of people felt it was undermining proper matching between guests and hosts, you know, guests who would get on with hosts and would like their, like their recommendations on restaurants, you know, or gigs to go to or places to go. And, the, and an interaction between the host and the guest that was very, very important. So there was that. Plus also some people have been hired on e-staff um, who they felt, who people generally felt were not living the values. You know, they weren't, they weren't the core values, which we'll talk about in another podcast, the core values. They're very, very important to building the culture uh, and to achieving your mission. And they felt these people didn't take them seriously. There were two or three of them. Just in their day-to-day interactions, like, for example, one of them was be a host, one of the core values. They felt that some of these leaders weren't hosty enough. They, they weren't there to help you do your best. They weren't there to make you feel like you belong and part of an important team, that they were in it just for the money, you know? And so there was a lot of that. Now, all of this, so that, that was, you know, quite a good technique in both identifying what built and undid the culture, but also defining what Airbnb's culture was too. Another technique I used that was really good, really helpful, was what I called advice to the founders. I said to um, these people, look, I promise you that whatever you write down, I will show the three founders, which I did. 
And I said, I want you to write at the top of the page advice to founders. And then I want you to write what you want them to continue to do, what you want them to stop doing, and then what you want them to start doing. Very cool. Which is good. You know, I mean, there's these, you know, when you work in a company, you never get to talk to the leaders often and especially give them a piece of your mind about <laughs> what you want them to, to start, stop, or continue doing. So, anyway, the advice to founders were things like uh, continue to constantly reflect on and prioritize the culture, stop talking a big values based game, but then prioritizing short term values less projects with the resources and attention. So that was an example, that last one of, you know, you say you're living the values, but then you go and do things like vacation rentals, which yes. I don't have any values in them at all. So, you're, you're, you know, you're talking out of your ass, basically. <laughs> Another one was uh, <laughs> advice to founders, continue to make values-driven decisions and holding others accountable to do the same. And when they're talking about others here, they're particularly talking about the people who work for you, the founders, you uh, hold these department heads accountable to making values-driven decisions because we don't think they are. We'll get back to the interview in a minute. Building a cult brand is not easy, which is why you need friends like Rupesh Nair, CEO of Symphony Talent on your side. It's easier than ever before to create video. Yet companies seem confused about how to use video to build an employer brand. What is your advice to companies who want to leverage video? Keep it very, very genuine. And only way you can keep it genuine is by making it basically come from people who actually work for you and actually not very tailored. The more you can leave it loose uh, and let people kind of express themselves using video, the more genuine and uh, and connecting it would be. So yeah, it's good to kind of give people guideline on how they want to kind of communicate about the brand and ensure that you're hitting the top points out there. But but frankly, getting it out there to ensure that you're co-creating those videos with your with your employees uh, is is the right way to go. And then bringing that content into your engagement as you think about it. And I'll give a shout out to our friends at Altru here. I think so- something like that is the best way to actually actually really build uh, videos than necessarily doing big, you know, uh, video shoots and things like that. I mean, video shoots have their place uh, when, you, when you build those corporate videos. But but if you really want to use video as a marketing uh, content, then it needs to be curated in a very genuine way. Let Symphony Talent help activate your brand and keep relationships at the heart of your talent strategy. For more information, visit symphonytalent.com. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcast, and now available on YouTube. And then and on the same sheet, actually, someone said, start, here we go, start holding other executives and leaders accountable when they fail to operate with a values-driven mindset. So, you know, these, these are all open-ended. They could have put anything down there. You know, these employees could have put down their... I want more money. You know, I want a better restaurant in the, 
in the building, whatever it was. No, they, they put things down there about the culture, the values, and the mission. So I was able to go back to um, the three founders in the spring of 2016 saying, I can tell you most of the things that I now think we need to know. I can tell you that the, the culture is strong, but it's getting wobbly, and I can tell you why it's getting wobbly. Uh, and then we can then have a discussion about how to fix the wobbliness. So what I was able to say was, what's making the culture, culture strong and we need to do even more of is, number one, the mission. Having a mission, which was belong anywhere, that went beyond business goals to world, making, making the world a better place, was a massive draw to people working at Airbnb and staying and working really, really hard. You know, it's why they got up in the morning. The values. Uh, were really important, that we had some and that we tried to live by them mostly was seen to be good. But there was a problem with the values, which I'll come back to in a minute. Having founders that really lived the missions and the values and who prioritized the culture was a huge inflator. There was a feeling, by the way, that founders were doing almost everything right. The, the only thing they were doing wrong is not holding um, their direct reports accountable to the mission and the values and the culture. So, you know, the, the, the people thought that Brian, Joe and Nate were, bit, were making business decisions that, um, that built and achieved the purpose and the culture, but their people weren't. And then other things, uh, having mission and driven value, mission and values driven colleagues, what they called, we called them missionaries rather than mercenaries. So having, having a workforce of missionaries who believed in the purpose and the values as much as you did, rather than having a bunch of people who were there just for the money, mercenaries, was, was what would make a strong culture. And then experiences, things like one Airbnb and the world acts and so on. But these were the culture destroyers that we had to fix immediately. Otherwise, you know, the culture would start disappearing out of the balloon rapidly and the whole thing would deflate. So we said, you've got to deal with the leaders who do not live the mission and the values. They either need retraining mm -hmm. or re-incentivizing or, or firing. <laughs> So, yeah. and I can, I can report that within a year, 18 months of that conversation, um, the sort of the three big offenders had left the organization, which was good. The colleagues who don't live the mission and values, but they, I think actually the, that was a misunderstanding amongst the employees. A lot of the, even some of those people wearing bloody Facebook and Google t-shirts were there for the mission and the values. It's just they hadn't gone to uh -huh. laundry or something. I don't know. But, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we gave them Airbnb t-shirts and they wore those instead. So, um, and then the, the other big thing I mentioned before, non-mission and values-led big decisions. So um, they revised the whole vacation rentals thing. The 100% instant book goal was also revised. And I'll come on to it later, but uh, other metrics which were, you know, valued the mission were, were given uh, more equal priority, which I'll come back to. And now the core values is the other thing, which is really important. People said, we're here for the core values. They make the, um, the mission possible. They make the culture strong, but they're not good enough. We have real problems trying to put them into action. Mm -hmm. Like there was a, there's a, and, and sometimes they were even abused. There was one called embrace the adventure. Embrace the adventure meant basically that you should you know, be bold, uh, do things that have never been done before, um, right. you know, uh, 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 be courageous, all these kinds of things. But, but leaders sometimes, you know, even on the East staff would say things like, I'm sorry, you've um, moved to get this done. We've got to work the weekend, but hey, embrace the adventure. You know, they were, 
<laughs> just not using the values, they were totally abusing them, which, which right. made, it, made it even worse. You know? right. That made maybe people think, well, screw this. If, if he or she is not taking the values seriously, why should I? So some of these next steps were totally in the hands of the, of the founders in things like, for example, changing um, the big goals to reflect achieving the mission, the big business priorities, and reviewing the leadership to make sure that they were also on track with the values and the mission. That was in the hands of the founders. The other thing that um, we could do together, though, was make the values better. Because as I said, they were good, but not good enough. People thought that there were too many of them, which there were. We had six. The most that people could remember were five. Um, when I asked them, okay, tell me what the core values are. And they go, be a host, champion the mission, embrace the adventure. Um, uh, um, you know, so they would, there, was, uh, there were too many. And also some of them were like Embrace the Adventure and Serial Entrepreneur were sometimes a little too cutesy and not specific enough at defining the behavior that was required of people. So we went on a, in the next year, I went on an adventure to, to do a whole zero basing of the core values and redefine them and rebuild them, which will be the subject of another podcast. So let me come back though to, uh, so that's what we did in terms of finding out what was building the culture, what was hurting it, and then the action we took to address those things. But I want to come back to two things which I haven't really, I don't think, talked enough about. One is, you know, what was the definition of Airbnb's culture? And then secondly, what is culture itself? Because I, I found, I learned, you know, through this experience to have, a, I think, what is a better definition of culture that most companies might be able to use more easily, you know, than the than what's around. So one thing, the thing I learned about Airbnb's culture was basically that uh, through all those exercises I did, Airbnb's culture could be defined as being one that's totally focused on delivering the mission um, and that it's very caring and very daring, meaning that you know, this whole idea of being a host was expressed in that value. It's, it's, it was not a culture of fear. It was not a culture of intimidation. It was a culture of making you feel like you belonged and in doing so that you would be able, we would do anything to be able to make you be the best you could possibly be, nurturing you to the point where you delivered your best. Not unlike some cultures, which was, which were, which could be things like scaring you to the point where you delivered your best. Ours was caring, not scaring. And daring uh, was another part of the culture, which is we keep, we keep doing things that have never been done before. You know, in every department, in every way, we would, as I've talked about in other podcasts, we would do plan Bs, not plan As. We would forge our own path and do things that had never been done. So we were always daring ourselves and daring others to do stuff that had not been done before. So it was a very entrepreneurial culture, basically, but one that was very caring. Plus, there was this freedom to be myself. Because I was welcomed and recognized and sort of loved by, for who I was and felt like I was part of a team and who, who liked me and celebrated me, you know, you, you were in a safe space. It enabled you to relax a little bit and, and sort of blossom. And you were basically trusted and given the space to get the job done in the way that you felt that you, that was the way to do it best, which was, which was fantastic, actually. Very few companies deliver that. So what is culture then? What is the purpose of culture? So the purpose of culture is to deliver the purpose primarily. And it does this by creating an incredibly driven, motivated team of people who are very cohesive, meaning that they are extremely good at working with each other to deliver on the mission. Why? Because they all value the same things. You know, they all share the same personal values 
which are enshrined in the core values. And those core values have defined a way of working with each other, you know, how you behave, how you make decisions together, um, uh, that's known. That's sort of, uh, uh, sort of, duh, of course we need to do it that way. Because we all know that, you know, that's what, that's what it is. So this culture is this sort of incredibly, as I said before, incredibly rich uh, social soup where everyone knows why they're there and what they're doing and how they should relate with everyone else. And everyone knows that we're all in the same boat together, all going in the same direction. So you've got this, this driven, focused, direction-given team to make the purpose a reality. Rather than, I mean, places without a strong culture are often places where you're arguing over and over again about the same things, fundamental basic things like, why are we here? What are we doing this for? How should we make our decisions with each other? You're not wasting any time doing that anymore. That's all been decided. Now you're just, you know, part of this team focused on making the purpose a reality. So what is culture? Let me go back to describing what that is. Um, I actually think there's both visible tangible things in, of culture and invisible. So the invisible bits are actually ultimately the most important bits. And they are what I would call, by the way, where this definition is coming from is I and a couple of others looked at all the academic definitions of culture that are around. And then some of the definitions that, uh, you know, companies have used and so on. And I either found them too academic and obscure or too simple. There was nothing that I could or that we could use as a sort of method, like a, like a template for, for culture that we could all use and know what we were talking about. So, so that's why I took the best bits of what I found and, and, and came up with this. So the invisible, invisible. Invisible aspects of, of culture are the shared assumptions that we all have about how we behave with each other, relate to each other, and decide things together. So it's those unwritten things, unspoken things, that make it a sort of like a, of course we know how to do this. We all know this, we're all in the same boat. Now, those, those shared assumptions about you know, why we're here, what we're doing, how we're relating to each other, they, they are driven by very undefined. These invisible aspects uh, and shared assumptions are defined by very visible things, specifically the purpose and the core values. So the purpose you know, is this very visible thing. In our case, it was creating a world where anyone can belong anywhere. And it says, that's why we're here. You know, if, if, you're, if you want that to be a reality, come join us and be part of the team. If you want to do something else, that's great. You can find that in another company. But we are here for this reason and this reason alone, creating a world where anyone can belong anywhere. And then the how we're going to get that is our core values. And we have these core values. There were six, now there's four. And these are the guardrails, if you like, or the the definers of, of those shared assumptions. They define how we decide things together, how we relate to each other, how we talk to each other. So things like be a host. Uh, the core values now have three behaviors each, which are very specific about, you know, very good at defining exactly the behavior that is expected of you. So being a, being a host is, is all the things I mentioned before. You know, work with other people to bring out the best of them by making them feel you know, in, they're in a safe space and that they belong and they're part of the team, that kind of thing. So the first most important visible aspect of culture are the purpose and the core values that should be written down, be everywhere, talked about by everyone all of the time, which we'll get on to in the next one, the next podcast. The next uh, visible aspect of culture is are the leaders. So the leaders should be like the high priests, if you like, of the culture. 
they should be the ones that, you know, if, if the core values are defining how you should behave, they should be behaving according to the core values all the time. So, for example, when we didn't have leaders on the management team who were being hosty, that mm-hmm. was a big problem because they weren't living the values themselves, which made people think, well, if they're not being hosts, why should I? Right. You know, it's all, actually what people thought was, God damn it, why aren't they being hosts? They don't belong here is, what, is actually what people felt. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, they need to be exemplars. And the leaders, the reason why the leaders are so important is, you know, obviously they're leaders, they're very visible. So they need to be living exemplars of the, of, the, of the values and the purpose. But they also the decisions they're making are also the biggest and most visible decisions that the company makes. And those decisions need to be seen to be living the purpose and the values as well. So that's why the leaders are so important. Now, in some companies and organizations, the physical, the space you're working in, the architecture, uh, the way people are dressed – the design of the products, the design of your presentations even, they all are there to reinforce the culture. So, for example, in Airbnb's offices all around the world, I mean, you literally can go from one office to another and you'll see, you know, they're not, it's not exactly the same, but you'll see the same themes and the same architecture and design. Mm-hmm. And the design is all about, I'm sure people know this already, but they, all the meeting rooms are exact recreations of hosts' homes somewhere in the world. That's so. So every single meeting room in Airbnb, like for example, there's um, the ones in in San Francisco. There was a an Airstream trailer that was a meeting room. <laughs> there was um, this amazing. There was this amazing kitchen uh, from a listing in Paris that was uh, that with all the knives on the wall and the recipe books and everything else. You know, first of all, they're really wonderful places. But the, the the way the architecture was working to reinforce the culture was saying that every time you're having a meeting and deciding things, you're literally being dunked like a tea bag into um, the host's <laughs> life. You know, you're literally having a meeting in their sitting room or in in their living room around the table that's fucking brilliant i mean it, it literally is fucking brilliant <laughs> so you can never you can you can never forget that you um you know you're this is what you're doing here you're creating a world yeah. where anyone can belong anywhere because you're doing it in an environment where people feel they belong in hosts homes so um so the physical manifestations are very important you know but also we could always tell when people were having tours of the office you could see these groups of people walking around they would dress differently you know, they wore jackets and had work shoes and, and stuff, whereas we were all wearing uh, T-shirts and jeans and what have you. You could just tell. So the physical is very, very important. The next important thing is uh, experiences and rituals. So these are things that will emerge over time. For example, there's a ritual uh, every week for new employees in every office, which is after we've had our big world meeting, which is, you know, in some offices that are remote or will, will be live streamed, then uh, all the new employees have to stand up and, you know, say who they are and sing a song or something. But then they, they, what happens is they have to run through the human tunnel. And the human tunnel is where all the members of the office form this human tunnel and the new employees will run through it and then leap onto a big Airbnb couch and they're given a, an Airbnb t-shirt. Now, you know, something, <laughs> no one can remember how that started, you know, and <laughs> You know, it's a bit silly and fun, but it's actually a pretty good ritual, you know, fairly classic ritual that's saying to people, you belong here now. You know, you once you're running through literally every person and coming out the other end, you're different at the end than you were at the beginning. You now belong. So those are really, really important. And the experiences like one Airbnb, super important. You know, bringing people together 
reminding them about the purpose and the values and doing you know fun things to to make that more apparent is is a huge part of Airbnb. In fact, there's a whole department at Airbnb called ground control whose job it is is to create these experiences and rituals in every office. Ones where uh, the culture is reinforced and the purpose and the values are reinforced. Is that an HR component or marketing? Now it reports to HR, but it used to report directly to Brian, actually, uh, for the longest time. And it used ground control. also used to do other things that are now done since we've grown so big by other other parts of the company, like out, fitting out the buildings and stuff. But no, now it's focused uh, very much, as I say, on creating these experiences. Yeah. Um, but reinforcing the purpose and the mission to everyone. So those those meaningful moments is that is that what they are really revolving around as well? They can be no the meaningful moments tend to be well they can be like one Airbnb for for a lot of, pe- lot of people are meaningful moments because yeah. it's a huge investment of the company spending millions uh, and bringing you around the world to to not do your job for a week basically <laughs> <laughs> you're not you're not writing code for a week you're not you know creating partnerships for a week instead spending a week with your with your friends in um, you know in this big event um, and and all the accommodation in San Francisco you can imagine it's like it's huge so for some people that is a meaningful moment the reason why it is a meaningful moment you're right is because it's a decision that's often costly in the short term but long term uh, lives a principle. And, you know, the principle basically that the founders are living there and, this, and the reason why they decide to do it is that there's a massive investment in the culture and they want everyone to be a host to each other. And you can do that best by making new friendships and getting to know each other better. But there are other meaningful moments and, and every company, I think, has them. They're the moments generally where a big bet has been made, uh, often a risky one where it's, and, and sometimes it can be existential, an existential threat. So the first one that I actually was part of was in 2013, in the fall, when um, the Attorney General of New York issued a subpoena to us to give him all of uh, our hosts, that was 15,000 people at the time, all of their information, you know, names, addresses, phone numbers, everything, the amount of revenue they'd earned on the Airbnb and so on. And um, after thinking about it long and hard for a week, uh, we, we said no to the Attorney General we won't do that. We're going to take you to court and squash your subpoena. And at this time, Airbnb was not well known. It's not the brand that it is today. It was, and in fact, the, their lawyers at the Attorney General's office said, do you know what you're doing? Do you know that no one says no to the Airbnb? And they even said, do you have any lawyers? You know, they should tell you this. Uh, we actually had one lawyer on staff at the time and a couple of people that we'd, uh, we'd uh, retained. But the, the point was, I mean, we thought this was an existential moment. God knows what the Attorney General could do when we right. said no. I mean, he could have turned around and said, okay, um, you have to cease and desist. You can't operate. And at the time, New York was by far our biggest market. It no longer is, but um, now I think Paris or, or maybe somewhere in China is. But, but then it was our largest market, and the threat was there to basically close it down, which would have had a dramatic effect on our future, as you can imagine. And so this was a really, really tough decision, backs against the wall. And in the end of the day, we said, we have to do the right thing. And the right thing is to stand right next to, shoulder to shoulder with our hosts and be in the same boat, you know, with the same threat, which is being closed down by the Attorney General of New York. And we're not going to give your, we said to them, we're not going to give your information. This is a massive data overreach. Um, he's fishing to see if there's a problem there. He doesn't know that there's a problem. And um, we refuse to do it. So these meaningful moments are ones that often 
short term create a, a very expensive and very risky. I mean, one of the biggest um, things that we knew that we had to do uh, as a result of this was we had to spend a lot of time with lobbyists and lawyers dealing with the Attorney General to squash it. But also we had to, a large part of the onus was on me actually at the end of the day to mobilize the hosts in New York to take political action and fight for a change of law and squash the subpoena and everything else and change cultural attitudes towards Airbnb. So I I spent basically the next uh, six months full time with a team of people doing that. So that was a huge, high, massive cost. Whereas most companies, in fact, every company that the Attorney General has issued a subpoena to simply complied and and had those face those costs. But we did it because, as I said, it was the right thing to do. Now we look back on it uh, and say, well, that was a meaningful moment. Um, We lived our value of being a host. We had to be hosts to our hosts. We had to make sure that they felt safe and that they belonged with us and that we stood shoulder to shoulder with them and that we wouldn't simply roll over and comply with this unfair subpoena, that we'd take the risks with them side by side and fight it and invest millions to fight it, which is what we did. Right. And that is a huge, meaningful moment. Yeah, huge. Another one of many, which we will still have with Douglas. Exactly. Well, Douglas, we, uh, we know your time is valuable. You've been uh, talking for a while now. I'm sure that that bottle of wine is empty by now. Actually, it's still full. I've been drinking my cup of tea. Well, then we are keeping you away from uh, that fine bottle of wine. Um, as usual, we greatly appreciate uh, the time. Uh, we will continue the series. For those listening who haven't heard the ones before this, uh, check out the backstory and be sure to stay tuned uh, for future episodes. Douglas, as always, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you very much. Talk to you next time. Excellent, Joel. We out. This has been the Chat and Cheese Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single show. And be sure to check out our sponsors because they make it all possible. For more, visit chadcheese.com. Oh yeah, you're welcome. Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.